Bibles to Job chapter 11. <clears throat> we'll begin this evening's study. The title tonight is Zophar Speaks to Job. Not so far, but Zophar. That's the name of Job's three, third friend here. After Job finishes answering Bildad, the second friend that spoke to him in chapter 10, the last of Job's three friends, now Zophar, has something to say to Job. And this is his first time speaking out here. And what he says really isn't anything new. Nothing different too much than what the other two friends have already said to Job. But his condemnation, Zophar's condemn, condemnation of Job, is more cruel and more straightforward than the other two friends, Eliphaz and Bildad. After listening to Eliphaz and Bildad accuse Job, Zophar should have had enough sense and consideration to try something new. And Job would hang on to his integrity, no matter what God did or what his friends had to say. That being the fact, why keep harping on the same thing? Job, you must have terribly sinned or have a terrible sin in your life, and that's why you're going through all of this suffering. And it's really sad when people who should minister to others in truth and love, end up causing them misery. Paul said in Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those that rejoice. See, that doubles the rejoicing and weep with those who weep. It cuts weeping in half. That's good counsel to follow. Zophar will speak only two times, while the other two friends speak three times. And the things that Zophar says here probably made glad Job. Well, I'm glad he's only speaking two times. And Zophar starts out by looking at Job's behavior. It was a very condemning evaluation by Zophar. And Zophar's goal was to find Job guilty and condemn him. And he started doing that the second he opened his mouth. Zophar zeroed in on two things in his condemning evaluation of Job. And they were the things that Job said and his sins. Let's begin with uh, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 11. It says, Then Zophar the Naamathite answered and said, Should not the multitude of words be answered? And should a man full of talk be vindicated? Should your empty talk make men hold their peace? And when you mock, should no one rebuke you? So Zophar's tone and his words are filled with harsh legalism. Again, check out Zophar's opening words. They're pretty cold. He says in verse 2, shouldn't somebody answer this torrent, this flood of words basically pouring out of your mouth? He says, is a person proved innocent just by a lot of talking? You know, should I stay quiet, Job, while you babble on? And when you mock God, shouldn't somebody say something or make you ashamed? I mean, how's that for starters? The first thing's out of Zophar's mouth to Job. Zophar heard the word windbag earlier by one of the other friends and decides, I'm going to use it too. 
He's basically saying, Job, we have listened to, you just, listened to you just about as long as we're going to. Enough is enough. And how many more things do you think you have to say, Job, to convince us you're just full of hot air? The truth is, Job, there's no righteousness in your life. Zophar's criticism was the same as Bildad's. Job, you talk too much. And yet you don't say anything. And in that day, not talking a lot was a much greater quality than it is today. Because, you see, in that day, it was a sign of wisdom. You see, it was thought that a man who talked a lot would sooner or later say something foolish or inappropriate, and which is true. So people thought it was proof of being, of, uh, being wise if a man was known for his silence and, lack of, and his lack of words. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 10, 19, In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. This is obviously foolish because, again, Solomon said in Proverbs eleven twelve, 12, A man of understanding holds his peace. And you've probably heard this saying, I'd rather remain silent and be thought a fool than open my mouth and remove all doubt. So Zophar's accusation that Job was full of talk in verse 2 suggested that Job was unwise. And then the words empty talk in verse 3 comes from a word that means to lie or to brag. Empty talk has the idea of boasting. And those who brag seldom tell the truth. They usually exaggerate, which is really a lie. If I have to embellish the truth and beef it up for you to believe it, then it's basically a lie. A person who's always talking about himself and how good he is or how often he's complimented is probably exaggerating just a little bit. Well, people do say I'm a great guy. <laughs> Empty talk. Empty talk plainly says Zophar thinks that Job is lying. But he's thinking that Job is lying without a good reason. And then he says in verse 3, Job, when you mock, that usually means speaking in an unkind way. The only mocking that Job could be blamed for would be saying in a sarcastic way, uh, uh, back in chapter 9, verse 2, that he knew the truth just like his friends did. And describing his friends as dried up streams that deceive the listeners. But you see, Zophar must condemn Job and he does it by accusing him of these things like lying and mocking talk. And then the next thing that Zophar judges Job for are his sins. And Zophar, like the other two friends, don't believe that Job has really properly taken a hard, has properly taken a hard look at his sins. And they see Job as a great sinner. And that this is what has brought the terrible afflictions upon Job's life. Now, Job doesn't deny that he's a sinner like everybody else. But what Job will not accept is the idea that his great suffering is because he has great sin in his life. And we know because of the first two chapters of Job that, that Job is right and that his friends are wrong. It was Job's righteousness and not his sins that brought on the afflictions. Look at verse 4. For you have said, my doctrine is pure, and I am clean in your eyes. 
Job said he was innocent of any terrible sin that would cause great afflictions to have come as judgment for sin. Job also said the same thing in his response to Bildad back in uh, chapter 10, verse 7, when he said uh, uh, that um, that, that I am not wicked. Look at verses 5 and 6. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips against you, that he would show you the secrets of wisdom, for they would double your prudence. Know, therefore, that God exacts from you less than your iniquity deserves. Zophar seriously wants God to say something to Job and to set his thinking straight about his sins. And by saying this, Zophar says God's wisdom would double your prudence, Job. That's just another way of saying God's wisdom is much greater than what most people realize. Zophar is right when he says God's wisdom is much greater than what most people think. But this was all said in the context of condemning Job, of of trying to disprove what Job had said about his innocence, and that Zophar was wrong. And taken apart from this context, what Zophar said is very true about everyone, especially the redeemed. No redeemed person can ever say that God has dealt with him according to what he deserves. And boy, we can thank God for that. That he hasn't given us what we deserve because we'd all be in hell. Every saved soul can only point to the amazing grace of God and the abundant mercies of God. For any blessing that they've received, especially the blessing of salvation. And every person on earth, no matter what their circumstances are, has to admit that God has not dealt with them apart from mercy. Even the best of men deserve a lot worse situation than anyone is experiencing. We can all say like Jacob in Genesis 32.10, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. But Zophar didn't have this thought in mind. He was using the mercy of God to condemn Job. What he was saying to Job was that Job's wickedness was so great that even the greatest calamities he was suffering were less punishment than he deserved. I mean, it was a pretty cold and cruel thing that Zophar was saying to Job. And Zophar clearly says that he believes Job has committed some very great sins or he, wouldn't have be, or he wouldn't have been punished so severely by God. And he believes that Job's sins are worse than his punishment that he's suffering right now. He said, Job, man, you're not getting really what you deserve. You deserve a lot worse. And that's the severest condemnation of Job yet by his friends. And it was totally uncalled for. Now, each one of Job's friends felt they needed to teach Job about God. The way Job was complaining at the beginning and the way he responded to Bildad and Eliphaz is what brought about this criticism upon Job. But Job wasn't ignorant about the things that his friends would teach him. But it was his complaining about God that made his friends think that Job was ignorant about the basic truths of God. And what Zophar and his friends said about God, it's true. 
And they say some really great things about God. But you see, it's the way they tried to apply them to Job that was all wrong. They would try to make every truth that they speak about God to be that which condemns Job for wickedness as being the cause for his problems. Verses 7 through 9. Can you search out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. So verse 7 starts out by emphasizing the awesomeness of God. Zophar says, God is so great, Job, and he's so awesome that it's impossible to totally know God. So it's even more impossible for a fool like you to know God. And because God knows everything, he knows all about you, Job. And he could punish you even more than he already has. Job, it could be a lot worse. And wow, you know, gee, thanks, Zophar. Thanks for those encouraging, wonderful words. Obviously, this is not, this is definitely not comforting to a man who has lost his family, his wealth, his health. And he's barely hanging on for dear life. Hey, you don't measure suffering like you measure a sack of potatoes at the market. The thoughtless way that Job's friends were talking about his situation shows that they lacked understanding. Solomon said in Proverbs 16, 22, understanding is a wellspring of life to him who has it. The word wellspring means life-giving fountain. Understanding is a life-giving fountain to him who has it. The Jewish Talmud says, the deeper the sorrow, the less tongue it has. In other words, the more you hurt, the less you say. The Talmud is, a, is the word Talmud means doctrine. It's from the Hebrew word to learn. It's a large collection of writings containing a full explanation of the civil and religious laws of the Jews. The two questions in verse 7 expect a no answer. Look at verse 7 again. Can you search out the deep things of God? No. Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? No. Because you see, nobody can solve the mysteries of God. Nobody can discover everything there is to know about the Almighty. Now, Job never said he knew everything about God. But what he did know is what encouraged him to hang on, to hold on to his integrity and not give up. Verse 10. If he passes by, imprisons, and gathers to judgment, then who can hinder him? God is all-powerful. And because it is, it makes him so superior to anyone or anything else. There's none like him. There's none beside him. There is no other God but Jehovah God, the true and living God. The thought here is that whatever God is doing, 
You can't stop him. Nobody can stop him successfully. Not anyone or anything. Nothing can stop God in any of his works or cause him to stop what he's doing. And Zophar is absolutely right. God is all-powerful. He has no equal. No one can overcome him. Solomon said in Proverbs, uh, I'm sorry, in Psalm 115.3, our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. Remember that. He's in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. Verse 11. For he knows deceitful men. Notice, he sees wickedness also. Will he not consider it? This is a great statement about God being all-knowing. And again, Zophar is right about God seeing all the evil that man does. Zophar said to Job, he sees. The word sees speaks of the character of God's seeing. It means more than observing something. It means more than just seeing something. It also includes when he sees it, he understands it. In other words, God sees what we do and he knows why we do it. He knows the motivation behind everything that we do. The motive behind the actions, whether it was good or for evil. We not only don't and can't hide what we do from God, but we don't fool him either. We don't get away with anything. God knows every single thing about everything that we do. Oh, Lord, you have examined my heart, know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm doing. Uh, I'm sorry, you know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. I can never escape from your spirit. Notice, I can never get away from your presence. Psalm 139, verses 1 through 4. You can never get away from God's presence. There's nowhere you can go where God isn't. The Bible says the world can't contain him. The emphasis here is on God's seen wickedness. The application that Zophar is making is that God has seen Job's wickedness, even though no one else does. And though even nobody knows about it. What Zophar doesn't know is that God saw Job's behavior as being exceptionally good. And because of that good behavior, God challenged Satan with Job's exceptional godliness. So you see, God doesn't just see the wickedness that we do. He also sees the good that we do. And like I said, you can't hide your sins from God. He sees your good works. And sometimes men don't notice the good things that we do. And maybe that might discourage you. But always remember, God does see them. That should encourage you. Hey, I want God to see my good works. I don't care about man, although he should. Because the word says that, you know, we are to let our light shine before men, our good works shine before men that they might glorify God. But I do know that God sees it. Verse 11, he says, will he not consider it? Will, in other words, the word consider refers back to the wickedness of the, of the contest. Will he not consider the wickedness that you've done? 
It means God will evaluate that wickedness in regards to what punishment is due. And now this is a direct insult to Job. And it, it implies that after God saw Job's wickedness and he considered it, he evaluated it based on his evaluation of Job's sin, God sent these horrible calamities to Job as punishment that fit the crime. So the severity of the affliction is because of the severity of Job's sins. And Zophar has said that the punishment was merciful and that it was less than, than Job's sins deserved because his sins were much worse. Verse 12. For an empty-headed man will be wise when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. What Zophar says here is meant to put Job down. It's a put down. Zophar says here in a roundabout way that Job, you can forget about learning about God because he's not able, because you're not able, because you're an empty-headed man. In other words, Job, you're too stupid to learn about God or search for him to find out about him because you're empty-headed. You can't learn. You're unable to learn. And once again, these are very cruel words used by Zophar regarding Job. But again, Job's earlier critical comments about God is what brought all of this on by his friends, all these accusations. And now that Job has been accused of his sins and taught a thing or two about God by his buddies here, Zophar says some good things about repentance. Well, but, but what makes this part of his speech bad is that this exhortation is inspired by a very wrong assumption, and that is that Job has sinned. Verses 13 and 14. If you would prepare your heart and stretch out your hands toward him, if iniquity were in your hand and you put it far away and would not let wickedness dwell in your tents. What Zophar says about repentance is right on the money. But again, his application of it is bad. Because Zophar, as well as his other two friends, just takes it for granted and wrongly that Job is a great sinner. Therefore, he needs to repent. Three excellent things are said here by Zophar about the character of repentance. Notice in the first part of verse 13, he said to Job, prepare your heart, Job. If you would prepare your heart. Repentance must be a work of the heart. It has to be more than just nice talk or words that cover up a person's bad behavior, you know, to make it look like repentance. True repentance is more than just going forward at an altar call. It's a heart decision. It's a heart of dedication. It's a heart of devotion. It's a heart of obedience. And the second thing he says is right on in the second part of verse 13, is he says, stretch out your hands toward him, Job. Stretch out your hands toward him. Prepare your heart and stretch out your hands toward him. Repentance is to be made to God. Stretching out your hands to him, 
That's a phrase that was often used to mean the act of prayer. So Zophar is urging Job to pray to God and to repent of his sins. And then in verse 14, he says, If iniquity, iniquity were in your hand, in other words, if you were guilty of sin, and you put it far away, and you would not let, let wickedness dwell in your tents. So repentance involves and requires separating from sin. He says, you know, if iniquity is in your hand, put it far away from you. Don't let it dwell in your tents. Repentance involves and requires separating from sin. Repentance involves putting away sin. Whether it's in your hand or in your house. They have sin in their hand and in their homes or in their tents. And again, repentance is more than just confession. True repentance involves separation from sin. And when you saw true conversion in the scriptures, you saw that person leave their old life. They left the old life behind and they followed Christ. They forsook their sin. They gave it up. Many people need to hear this. But more importantly, they have to understand it. A.W. Tozer said this, A whole generation of Christians has come up believing that it's possible to accept Christ without forsaking the world. This separation from sin can include restoration also if it's necessary. The words put it far, uh, put it far away from the commentator Barnes means, if the case admits of it, make reparation or restitution. And this is great advice about repentance. But again, it doesn't apply to Job at all. So trying to make it fit Job's situation, that was a big mistake by Zophar. Verse 15. He said, then, all right, if he, if he did what he said was told to do in verse 15, 13 and 14, if you would prepare your heart, if you would stretch out your hands, if you would put away sin, he says in verse 15, then surely you could lift up your face without spot. Yes, you could be steadfast and not fear. According to Zophar, the many sins in Job's life has stained his life. That's what it means by the word spot. You could lift your face without spot. You could lift your face without shame, without stain. But if you repent, God would wipe away the stains, the spots from your life. Repentance really does result in having the stains or the spots of sin removed from our life. But again, Job's situation is not accurately described by Zophar. And repentance brings power, doesn't it? The unrepentant sinner doesn't have power to live a godly life. And how many times, and even maybe yourself, you said, you know what, I'm going to quit doing this. And I remember long when I, before I came to the Lord, I said, you know what, I'm going to stop doing certain things. I'm not going to do this anymore. But it wasn't long before I was back in the old vomit. Though I meant it, and I really wanted to do those things, I was right back at it. Not long after I said, I'm not going to do that anymore. The unrepentant sinner doesn't have the power to break sin. They don't have the power to live a godly life. They're unstable and they're weak. 
The world pictures the sinner as the tough guy, the strong guy. But sin destroys all of that. It's when a man or a woman turns to God and repents of their sin that they become powerful where it counts the most. Breaking the hold of sin on their life. Sin brings disorder to your life and it brings fear to the heart. But repentance brings calmness. It brings tranquility. It brings peace and order. That's why you see this world in such chaos and disorder today. The world doesn't know peace because it's filled with unrepentant sin. So all of the talk about peace in the world, apart from the repentance of sin, is nothing but wishful thinking. That's all it is. It'll never happen. Verse 16. Because you would forget your misery and remember it as waters that have passed away. Forgetting your misery, Job. Forgetting your misery says pleasure comes from repentance. Job, if you would repent, you'd forget about all your misery. Happiness comes from holiness. And repenting of one's sins is going to put you on that path of holiness. That's why David said in Psalm 51, 12, Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation because my sin has taken that joy away, that unrepentant sin. He tried to hide it from God and he was, he was that, that sin from God and he was miserable. After he confessed, he said, Lord, restore to me the joy that I once had in my salvation. You see, joy comes to that one that repents that one who puts away sin and lives for Christ. Job is miserable in his affliction here. But again, repentance is not what Job needs to do. As Job is trying to tell him here. That's not the answer for what Job's going through. Verse 17. And, he says, and, and your life would be brighter than noonday. Though you were dark, you would be like the morning. So far, says Job, if you would repent... Man, it would brighten up your life. Now, what, what Joe Zophar is saying, here, his thinking here is the good life. Oh, Job, things would be so much better for you if you would repent. The gloomy days and the problems that are all around you, Job, they would disappear. If only you'd turn to God and you would be, if you would turn to God, you'd be allowed to enjoy a bright, bright day of prosperity. Now, this is all good teaching by Zophar. But again, it doesn't apply to Job's situation. Zophar has good doctrine, he has good teaching, but allows the application. Verse 18 and 19. And you would be secure because there is hope. Yes, you would be, yes, you would dig around you and take your rest in safety. Zophar tells Job here that if he truly repented of his sin, then he wouldn't have to worry about his safety. He'd be protected from the Chaldeans and the Sabaeans, raiding his flocks and stealing them. You won't have to worry, Job, about other things hurting you. Repentance really does bring protection. True 
Biblical repentance brings eternal protection from the judgment and the damnation of sin. But again, Zophar's application of this great truth that Zophar is t- teaching him here or talking to him about here, this, this, this application doesn't, again, apply to Job's situation. Zophar is so off of the wall. He's so off the mark. The promise in verse 19, it says, You would also lie down and no one would make you afraid. Deals with Job's status. He said, And yes, many would court your favor. He says, many would look to you, Job. They'd look to you for counsel. The meaning of the text there is that, Job, you would be a man of honor and many people would look to you. You you would rise in status if you repent, Job. Because others would come to you for advice and counsel. This was evidently an honor that was highly valued in the East. When, they, when men came to you for advice and counsel. This was an honor that Job used to have and, and took pride in. Others will come to you, Job, again for counsel if you repent. But again, it wasn't because Job needed to repent like Zophar says. As a matter of fact, later on when we get to the, close to the end of, of the book of Job in chapter 42... Zophar will be told by God, hey, you need to go to Job and have him pray for you. Verse 20 in closing. But the eyes of the wicked will fail, and they shall not escape, and their hope, loss of life. Zophar finishes his speech to Job with a warning about the curses that will come upon him if he doesn't repent. And Zophar lists three curses that will come to Job if he doesn't repent. Once again, what Zophar says is true. But his application is bad. Doesn't apply to Job. Job doesn't need this warning. Just like he doesn't need to repent of some assumed wickedness by Zophar. But again, the message is a good one for all unrepentant sinners. But repentance has some consequences. But so does failure to repent. It says here in verse verse 20, the eyes of the wicked will fail. In other words, the unrepentant sinner won't see the deliverance or relief from their troubles. Their eyes will get tired of looking for help that they will never find. And their eyes will get tired of looking for a deliverer who never comes. And he says, notice in verse 20, they shall not escape. The unrepentant sinner won't escape God's judgment. He won't be justified. He won't be cleared. He won't be vindicated. But he will be condemned as a sinner and he will be punished accordingly. According to his deeds. And what's the hope of the unrepentant sinner? Verse 20 says at the end, loss of life. In other words, all the unrepentant sinner has to look forward to is loss of life. And all they can hope for is eternal death. And separation from God for all eternity. They have no hope. 
Not repenting will remove any hope of a better future. And this is true for sinners who don't repent, but it doesn't apply to Job. And Zophar trying to apply this to Job, again, all it does is insult Job. It's an insult to Job. What Zophar is trying to do is to get Job to bargain with God so that he can get out of his troubles. Job, come on now, repent, and everything will be sweet. Come on, Job, let's do it. This is exactly what Satan wanted Job to do. Bargain with God. Satan asked Job in chapter 1, verse 9, does Job, or he, asked, he said to God in, in chapter 1, 9 of Job, does Job fear you, Lord, for nothing? Satan accused Job of having a commercial faith. In other words, God, I'll be obedient if you make me prosperous. Lord, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. And how many times we try to bargain with God. Lord, if, you, man, if you'll do this, man, I'll do this. If Job had followed Zophar's advice, he would have played right into the enemy's hands. But Job didn't have a commercial faith. The faith that Job had didn't make bargains with God. Job had a confident faith in God. He had such a confident faith in God that he said, Lord, though you slay me, I'm still going to trust you. Lord, if you, no matter what afflictions you bring on my life, I will trust you. No matter what you allow to happen to me in my life, I will trust you. Now, that doesn't sound like a man who's looking for an easy way out of his problems. And I'll end with this quote. Charles Spurgeon said, Job didn't understand the Lord's reasons, but he continued to confide in his goodness. That's faith. Father, we thank you so much for your word. God, help us to learn, to grow, to have a faith like Job's, God. Lord, we can see why Job is suffering. He couldn't see. And yet, Father, he worshipped you after he lost everything. And he said, I know I will see my Redeemer again. And he said, Lord, no matter what you do to me, I will trust in you. Oh, Lord, give us faith like this. Just an obedient faith. As Jesus, it says, was obedient even unto death. Lord, we just give you praise and honor and glory, God. We thank you for being our God We thank you for sending your son to die on a cross for us, Lord. We thank you for the word of God. And Lord, may we love it. May we read it and study it. May we apply it. May we grow in it for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Awesome.